There's too many people who don't know Jesus. And that is our purpose while we're here on this earth. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Not go into the world and debate this minutia and that minutia. Not that. Go into all the world, share the gospel, nothing but Jesus. And that's what Paul is desiring here, is please come to know Jesus. Do you have a friend where that's your heart for them? Or a child who is left and you are just yearning and praying for them to come home? So, the movie Schindler's List is just an incredible piece of art. Just an amazing movie. And, you know, in the movie, he saves Jews from the Holocaust. As many Jews as he can possibly save. And towards the end of the film, in fact, at the end of the film, it's just an incredible scene. If you've ever seen it, it's just an amazing closing scene where the main character, he's saying, I wish I could have done more. And he saved so many. The end, it turns from black and white to color as the people walk by who he saved, showing what he had done. And yet at the end, he yearns, he pleads, I wish I could have done more. I wish I could have sold something else in order to save just one more. And that's what Paul is doing in this passage. Just let me save one more. And so we want to share with you now a piece from that movie that I think captures the deep, deep longing, even the sadness that we should have over those who are lost. Because before we go any further on this passage, I want to just frame it in that way. It's not about a theological debate. It's about people coming to know Jesus. Is that your yearning of your heart to just save one more?
question is, in verse 6, is when things go wrong, when there's evil, when people don't come to know Jesus, did God fail? Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And last week, we began to unpack this incredible, apparent contradiction that God chooses, that God elects from the foundation of the world all the way in eternity past, that God He doesn't look down the corridor of time and see who will choose him. He doesn't look down and see, well, I like that person, I like that person. No, he looks and he chooses from before the foundation of the earth. Who will come to know him? A hundred percent. Salvation is of God. Period. And we take that doctrine all the way to completion. There's no watering that down. However, at the same time, man, all men, are responsible for choosing God. All men. That's why there's accountability. That's why not everyone is saved. (laughs) Because all men are responsible, are humanly responsible. We are responsible for all of our actions. We're not robots. God is sovereign on one hand. Humans are responsible on the other. Now, that doesn't make sense. That's an apparent contradiction because we can't truly grasp that in our minds, but it doesn't change the fact that God is sovereign and man is responsible. Look at verse 6 again, and we'll read through verse 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. You know, we love Romans 8. We love the promises in Romans 8. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That we are adopted into his family. That nothing can separate us from his love. We love those promises. We love the grace. We love talking about how God saved us. When we look back, we say that God was drawing me here and doing this in my life and bringing that person into my life and drawing me to himself. We love singing songs about Christ being enough 
And the song we sang earlier about Christ, the cornerstone, that we only stand on his righteousness, that it is God who saves, that salvation is of the Lord. We love saying those things. We love singing those things. We love believing those things. We love Romans 8. But then when we get to Romans 9, it's as if Paul is taking it even further. He's taking it even further. And when we see what he says in Romans 9, we're thinking, well, is grace really and truly that amazing? You know, Paul may want to back off a little bit on the message here. Maybe Paul is taking it a little bit too far. Because do we truly believe that salvation is really of the Lord? Or do we believe that we kind of contribute to our own salvation? Do we believe that it's 100% God? Or do we believe that it's, you know, maybe it's 95, 90% God, and then we take it the rest of the way? We resist, we rebel against this idea that we have nothing to do with our salvation. We love this idea that we have some sort of thing called free will. We're not free to do anything. We are free to choose evil again and again and again. That's what I do when it's up to me. If it's up to my will, I'm choosing the wrong thing every time. But yet, in this passage, we see that it's not us, it's all of God. That he is the blessed controller of all things. And yet, we are still radically and relentlessly responsible for all of our actions. We still all must choose God. How is that possible? How is it possible with, what every, with everything I just said before that? It's a mystery. But Paul unpacks it here for us. So he does this by using different examples. One of the examples he uses, if you'll see that in those verses, is the example of Jacob. Now, you know, Jacob was the twin of Esau, all the way back in the Old Testament. And Jacob was known as the deceiver, known as the sinner. Just imagine, put your name in there and say, you know, Chuck the deceiver. That's Jacob. That's what he's known as. So Jacob is a deceiver, and his twin brother Esau had been born first. So according to all the traditions, Esau was the one who should have been given the birthright, who should have gotten the inheritance, who should have gotten God's favor. Esau was a man's man. He was hairy, Scripture tells us. He went out and hunted. You know, he was like a big men's fraternity type guy. He was strong. And Jacob, on the other hand, was kind of a sissy. If you read the passage, he liked to cook. You know, he wasn't the one who went out and, and hunted like his brother Esau. And who was it that God favored? You would think the smart decision would be to favor Esau. 
You would think that God would see that Jacob would deceive. He would deceive his father. He would deceive Esau. He would steal his birthright. And you would think that God would see that and say, you know what? I think I want Esau on my team and not Jacob. But that's not the way God works, is it? He chooses the weak things to shame the strong and the foolish things to shame the wise. We want fairness. We are addicted to fairness. Is it fair? Is it fair that God chose Jacob instead of Esau? Do we want fair really? Because fair would be something like this. Fair would be God looking at planet Earth, looking at, yes, even Christians, and basically using his zapping powers to do one of these zaps towards Earth, destroy everything, and start over on Mars. That would be fair. It would be fair not to save me. It would be fair not to save you. I mean, we know that God is not fair because I'm standing up here preaching. That is a picture right there of unfairness. We talk about fairness. He doesn't give us what we deserve. Our only hope is that God is unfair according to human standards. That's our only hope. It should shock us that he lets us in at all. That should shock us. And so Paul uses his example of Jacob and Esau, and he shows that up is down and left is right in God's economy. It doesn't make sense. And God isn't there to be judged by us. Instead of why doesn't God choose everyone? Our question should be, why does God choose anyone? Why does God choose you or choose me? Last week we said apparent contradictions, if God, why evil? Today, apparent contradictions, if God, why me? And I told you last week we would try to answer the question of why evil according to the scriptures And the answer to the question this morning is the same for why evil and why me. He gives us the answer. And we don't get to make up our own stuff. If there's a verse we don't like in Scripture, we don't get to just, you know, scratch it out. We don't get to make up new things. He gives it to us chapter and verse. So instead of asking, Why does God choose? Why doesn't God choose everyone? The question should be, why does God choose anyone? Why does he choose me? Moses, which is the second example Paul gives, asks the same question. Verse 14. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? I mean, Paul actually asks this question. He asks the question that we're thinking. Is God unjust for choosing Jacob instead of Esau? He asks the question, by no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have 
compassion on whom I have compassion. That's pretty clear. And again, once again, when you look at the way God works, and I'm thankful for the way God works, when you look at the way God works and you look at his choosing of Moses, why would he have chosen Moses over Pharaoh? If I'm God, I'm choosing Pharaoh. Pharaoh is ruling the entire known world at the time. He's powerful. He's brilliant. He's smart. Moses is out in hiding. Moses is a, a wanted murderer. Moses even says this when God comes to him is, why me? Why choose me? I can't even speak. He doubted his giftedness. He doubted his ability. And yet God chooses Moses over Pharaoh. I mean, I'm choosing the wise, the powerful. Imagine what Pharaoh could have done. Imagine the difference that a guy like Pharaoh would have made. I mean, imagine the Facebook statuses we could have all come up with. The interviews of Pharaoh. You know, I mean, that would have really, really worked to choose someone like Pharaoh. You know, because we're like that, aren't we? You know, you have a, a football player or an athlete, and they either become a Christian, or maybe they quote a Bible verse, or whatever it may be, and it's great. But then what do Christians do? I mean, we hold them up as if God is dependent on whether or not, you know, Tim Tebow or whoever is preaching the word. I remember Deion Sanders. Remember Deion Sanders? He became a Christian, and he made the circuit. You know, he's preaching here, preaching there, doing all of his stuff. Christians are just, you know, just holding him up. I mean, God forbid that it would have been like the ball boy who became a Christian, the one who brings the water. God forbid that we bring him up and say, this guy right here came to know Jesus. Listen to his story. We want the powerful we want the talented, the good-looking. And God is just the opposite. I mean, for a while there, Deion Sanders is on fire, and then eventually, you know, he kind of like says, bye-bye. That's it. God chooses the weak things, the foolish things. He doesn't choose the way we would choose. So it's not only offensive that he chooses in the first place, it's offensive who he chooses at all. That's offensive. He uses weak men. You know, Billy Graham died this past week. And, you know, when you study his ministry, when you study his personality, when you study his background, there is no reason in the world why he should have been the greatest evangelist of the 20th century. No reason in the world. He actually, at the height of political, evangelical clout in the 80s, he was approached by the moral majority, by Jerry Falwell, etc., and they wanted to bring him into the team. I mean, they were at the height of their power at that point. And he said, no thanks. No thanks. Nothing but Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. I'll preach the gospel. I mean, he, he backed off from that kind of power. That was one of the things that he repented of, is how close he had gotten to that kind of power in the 70s. 
God chooses the weak things. I went to see him back in 1992. Melanie and I went. He was at Veterans Stadium. And it was the day that Reggie White, the football player from the Eagles, he was speaking before Billy Graham. And he stood up and he announced to the entire stadium that Jerome Brown, another eagle, had died in a car accident that very day. And then Billy Graham got up there and he spoke. And, you know, he's just a regular guy. Just a regular, weak, frail person just pouring his heart out over the gospel. The simple gospel message. And thousands came to know Jesus as a result, some of you may have come to know Jesus because of him. I mean, God uses the weak ones. He offends us in the ones that he chooses. Doesn't choose the strong. He chooses the weak. Why me? You know, a lot of times we think that it's like, you know, we're at the top of the ladder. But really... We're at the bottom of the ladder in our lives. Just hanging on for dear life and Jesus behind us, carrying us up the ladder. It's not us. It's not our works. It's all grace. And that's what Romans 9 is all about. Basically saying this grace that he's been waxing eloquent about in Romans 8, he's taking it all the way. He's taking it all the way. Are you taking it all the way in your life? Are you embracing these apparent contradictions all the way? Because if you do, there's not only grace, but there's also human responsibility at the same time. And we'll get to that in a minute. When you think about the weak things, the weak vessels... That God uses. None is weaker. None is more frail. None is poorer. None is more unlikely, more counterintuitive than Jesus Christ. Think about how He sent His Son, becoming one of us. You can't get any smaller than that. Condescending, a poor carpenter. Someone who knew no sin but became sin for us. They were looking for a king. They were looking for a ruler, for a mighty warrior. I mean, they were people who wanted a king in the Old Testament. You remember that? They wanted a king. And then when it came time to anoint David king, looked at, the, looked at him and his brothers, and he was the lowliest of them. He was just a shepherd boy. Why not this guy? He's tall and strong and talented. That said, no, I want David, someone who's unlikely, counterintuitive, shocking, someone who many times or all the time, it's because God wants to show his glory through that weakness. I mean, you couldn't really ascribe it to anything else when it comes to David. And then when it comes to Jesus, Jesus is there on the cross. Here he is, King of kings and Lord of lords. And this is the way it goes. It's always counterintuitive. It's always shocking 
the way that God chooses, the way that he works, that he uses strength and weakness. Paul actually talks about this in 2 Corinthians. He said, I have a thorn in my flesh. Some of you have that right now. A thorn in my side. It might have been an ailment. It might have been a sin. It might have been a relational struggle. Who knows what it was? And he said, I pleaded with the Lord three times, remove it. Please take this thorn from my flesh. Please take this thorn from my flesh. Please, God, take this away. And God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough. That's what he said. And then he said these incredible words. For my strength, my power, God's power is made perfect in your weakness. You hear that? How is that possible? What a contradiction that is. How does God's power need anything from us? God's power shouldn't need anything. It's complete. It's all. It's total. But yet he says that somehow, some way, it's true that he's all-powerful, and yet his, powerful, his power is made complete only in our brokenness, weakness, our struggles, your struggles, my struggles. That's where his power is made perfect. What a contradiction that is. And so then, we need to look at this idea of, you know, I'm, I'm saying that salvation is all of God. I'm saying that there's nothing that we do to save ourselves. It's not 95% and 5%. And some of you might be confused about the idea of God predestining, that God's choosing, God elects, as we see all through Scripture, Ephesians 1, Romans 8, 29 through 30, here in this passage, blatantly said, but then on the other hand, humans are responsible, that humans must choose God. I mean, how is that even possible? And how can a human choose God? How can that even happen? And Others of you are thinking, well, I can do it, or, you know, my friend can do it, or it's up to me, it's up to my free will, and I, I can do it. That's not right. I don't like what that says. That's not good. Here's the thing that you need to remember. What is the condition of the man, of the woman, before they come to Christ? What is their condition? We preach this every single week. What is their condition? They're dead. Dead, 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 dead. That's what they are. That's what I was. That's what you were. Spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, dead in your sin. Colossians 3, dead in your sin. Ezekiel 36, I will give them a new heart. I will replace their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. We don't need to be healed. We need to be resurrected. We need new life. So we are there, we are spiritually dead until the Holy Spirit regenerates us. We don't do that. He does that. God does that. God is the one who breathes life into us. John 3, we must be born again. That's what that means. That's what that says. And so before that, I want you to imagine a lion so a lion has two possible meals in front of him. 
a lion eats meat. So a lion has in front of him a whole big pile of, you know, meat, etc. And on the other side, there's all of these, you know, vegetables and things like that. Which meal is the lion going to choose? He's going to choose the meat 10 times out of 10 times. Every single time. Why? Because that's his nature. That's how he's made. He's only really able to choose that. And before we are resurrected, we can only choose wrong. We don't have the ability to choose God. He chooses us. You did not choose me. I chose you. Dead. That should cause us incredible worship. You know, what we do is we get mad, we get offended, we want to debate the point. I mean, we'll sing it over and over and over again, but the second that you take grace too far, what is our response? Well, what about that? What about this? What about this, this verse here? Instead of the clear reading of Scripture, when our response shouldn't be, why are you doing this, God? Or that's not right. But to fall on our faces and worship because of the work that only he did in our lives. I mean, when you, again, when you look at me up here, this can only be God. It can only be his doing. A a guy like me preaching the word, it can only be God. I mean, a guy like me being saved can only be of the Lord. Get that in your life. It will change your life. It will change your life. When it comes to choosing, again, we are dead. I gave an illustration last week that this apparent contradiction, when you you imagine that you are a person and you're walking up to a door, and this door promises eternal life. It promises heaven. And on the top of the door, on the way in, it says, whosoever will come, let him enter. It's from Romans 10, Revelation. Whoever comes, let him enter. And so you enter. And then you turn around and you see on the top of the door, you didn't choose me, I chose you. That's the way it works. And that illustration breaks down significantly because we're not walking along the path in the first place. How can someone who's dead do anything? So we need to be resurrected first, and then we can walk in. When you look at, I have no problem saying that we chose God. None. We chose God after he chose us. Because who did the choosing all the way from eternity past? If you go back, all the way back to eternity past, who was it that chose? Who was it that thought of you? Who thought of me? Jeremiah 1, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. He knew you. He knew me. How glorious is that, that it's not dependent on something that we do. If it's dependent on what I do, I'm in trouble. If you look back, all the way back, again, because I want to make sure no one misheard what I just said, Choosing all the way back, God chooses us before the foundation of the earth. 
And then we choose because he first loved us. That's it. End of our knowledge when it comes to that. And instead of debating it and getting angry, and if you have a different opinion of that, that's fine. Billy Graham himself had a different opinion and different take of what I just shared. You know, you look at R.C. Sproul, who died this past year, Billy Graham, who died this past year, two giants of the faith, two with different theological convictions. Is it possible that God uses both? Is it possible that he uses both and that we're to preach our convictions, preach the word, and then graciously and lovingly embrace and accept others who may have a little bit of a different opinion about it than we do? I mean, is that possible for us to do that? Just imagine if we were to capture that, this idea of apparent contradictions. Instead of saying it has to be hard line over here, and we have to preach it to the extent where it offends everybody, because if we're not offending people, we're not preaching. You know? Instead of saying, here's what the scriptures say, here's the truths that are presented. This is how they go together. This is how we can understand them. But there's other people, other good people, who may see it a little bit differently. And you know what? We're talking about the deep, deep mysteries of God when we talk about this. This is not a light matter. This is a huge, deep, deep mystery. I am way over time. I had no idea. It was 11.56. Whew. All right. I'm going to close with this because I have to. So, I promised I would give the answer to why evil and um, why me. And it's in verses 11, 16, and 18. 11, 16, and 18. Verse 11, they were not yet born, done nothing good or bad. Here it is. In order that God's purpose in election might stand. Not because of works, there it is, but because of him who called, who calls it's all about his glory. Amen? All about his glory. And so some people ask, well, if God has chosen, if God has elected, why do we evangelize? Why would we share our faith if God's going to just do it? Because of human responsibility. Because you don't get it, that it's both. You don't get apparent contradictions. And you're probably hard to live with as a result. Because life is an apparent contradiction. And that was my application that I don't have time to get into right now. I apologize. There it is, right there. And one final statement in closing as the worship team comes up. I guess they're trying to give me a hint to stop. I really wanted to get to this, but we'll leave it for next week. When you look at evangelism, when you look at prayer, things like that, why do those things? Those are the objections. If this is all true, why do those things? Because God uses us to save one more, to share our faith, 
as we said earlier, to go into the world to share this message of nothing but Jesus. Not of nothing but theological minutia and debates and blah, 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 blah. Not nothing but politics and all that stuff. Nothing but Jesus. I love that song you guys sang earlier. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have this whole world, but give me Jesus. You know, Reach Church, we are so privileged. God is favoring us. God is using us, not because of us. As I look at what God's doing and I see what God's doing, it's not because of me. Not because of me. It's because of God. How is God calling Reach Church to share this wonderful message of nothing but Jesus?